We're in a series on the I am sayings in John's gospel. Uh, so a whole bunch of times in this gospel, Jesus says, I am the, and then the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection, the vine, and so on. We're in a series on those. And today we're going to be looking at his amazing statement, I am the resurrection and the life. So if you have your Bible, could you grab it? We're going to be in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Every one of us one day is going to come face to face with our greatest enemy. And the name of our greatest enemy varies according to who you are. In the Bible, Isaiah calls it the shroud that covers all people. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, describes it as the last enemy to be destroyed. Most of us call it death. And death is our greatest enemy for human beings. It causes the vast majority of human suffering, I think. The vast majority of suffering you experience is either because of death or because your body is configured to try and avoid death and therefore you experience pain. And we spend much of our lives trying to avoid thinking about death. And often we get away with it for a bit until a big tragedy reminds us how close to death we all are. Maybe it's an earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Maybe it's a global pandemic. But we're confronted with the reality of mortality, of death, our enemy, that will, in some measure, unless Jesus returns, will get us one day and we will have to meet it. And some of us this morning are reeling from impact, the impact of the last enemy right now as I'm talking. It's just crashed into your family or your home or your friendship circle or your work. This is always very real for us because we, are, we live in a world like that. And actually, we're probably less aware of it than many generations have been because you can actually live fairly innocent of the reality of death for months on end in our culture if you want to but it always in the end cuts across our consciousness once again and reminds us the last enemy is still here and since the beginning of human history humans have tried to get away get away with it or trying to work our way around it or avoid death altogether so the elixir of life a sort of potion that might make you live forever or the philosopher's stone or cryogenic freezing or AI that's going to mean we can just download ourselves into the internet or something and then live on forever. All of these different things, they're ways of human beings who hate death getting away from the reality of death altogether and saying, maybe there's a way where I don't have to face it. Because humans hate death and are often very frightened of it. And we're right to, be, to hate it. Yet in all of that time, in all of that history, there's only one person who's ever claimed to have defeated death. And there's a number of times you get in history, you get a rumor of somebody, are they still, do they really die or are they still floating around or I've seen a ghost, you get some of that. But there's only one person in history who's ever claimed to rise again with a body and live forever and claim that everyone who believes in them will rise again with a body and live forever. And I think that's quite odd. I think the fact that in the whole span of human history, there's only been one person who said, I have defeated death, I think that's a bit odd. Because there's a lot of people who've come up with ways of talking about avoid, getting around sort of creative ways of talking about what happens after you've died. And there's a lot of people who've come up with ways of saying, here's how to avoid thinking about death or here's how to live a meaningful life in spite of death. Socrates or Plato or the Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius, loads of great thinkers who've done that. But there's only one person in all history 
who has claimed that not only he, but everyone who believes in him will not just go to heaven when they die, their soul floats away to be in a sort of paradise state forever. Lots of people say that, but there's only one person who's ever said, I am not just gonna do that. I, my soul and my body are gonna be reunited in a new body and all my believers are gonna rise again with a body and never die again. That's an astonishing statement and only one person in history has made it. And of course his name is Jesus Christ in John chapter 11. And you might not believe him, of course. Many listening to me today probably don't, or at least at the very least aren't sure if you believe him. But you know you want to. You know you want to believe that Jesus has overthrown death, that, that the only man who claims that. You kind of want to believe it somewhere in yourself, don't you? Because, of course, we, that's why human beings are... So we're desperate for death not to be there because we don't like the idea of facing it ourselves. So we really hope that when someone says, I have risen from the dead and you can trust in me and find life on the other side of it, we kind of really want that to be the case. I often think of the French philosopher Luc Ferry, who's a, an atheist, um, but, uh, but he says, I, I don't think there's, amongst all of the different doctrines of salvation out there, nothing compares with Christianity because of its promise that the dead are raised. So no other religion offers anything like that. That's the what I would, I'd like that to be true. I don't believe it, but if I did believe it, I'd definitely be a Christian because I want that to be the way the world is. That's why we live like this. We hate death. We want to overcome death. And that's why we don't go gentle into that good night, but we rage against the dying of the light. It's just what people do. Because a future in which death is overthrown and in which the dead are raised forever and creation is renewed, never to rot again, that's vastly to be preferred over a world in which our souls just cease to exist and our bodies gradually decompose into nothingness. And that future of a resurrected person, a resurrected humanity and a resurrected world is exactly what Jesus promises in John chapter 11 and verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So let's read John 11, and we're going to begin at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus hadn't yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad smell. He's been there four days. Then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of God. This is a very famous passage, it's often read at funerals and in other places, and there are a lot of ways we could look at it. But one that I think is helpful is to look at the story through three pairs of eyes of the basically the brothers and sisters at the heart of the story. Lazarus, who's the dead man, and Martha and Mary, his two sisters. Because in one sense, we are all three of them. There is a sense in which in this story, we are Martha. Right? Someone we love has died. We find it troubling, upsetting, confusing. So we ask Jesus about it and he tells us to believe. He tells us to trust him that we and all that we love will rise again. So this is in verses 21 to 24. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now just pause there for a moment and consider Martha's faith. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know. She's not worried. It's not like she lacks belief that the resurrection's going to happen. She knows that he's going to rise again. She basically is saying what we say in the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. She, she affirms that. She's a Jew. Of course she believes in the future resurrection. That's what Jews in the first century, apart from the Sadducees, but that's what they believe. So she's holding on to faith, saying, I know I'm going to see him again. That's not my question. My question is, is he going to rise again now? Of course I know he's going to rise. That's not the issue at all. I believe that. That's what it means to believe in a God who raises the dead. I mean, is he going to rise now? So I know he will be raised. The only question for me is not whether he'll raise, but when. That is so important for our theology of healing. If I can just make this sort of side point from that, I think it's really important. So when I pray for a person to be healed of sickness, I don't have to worry about whether or not God wants to heal them. A lot of people really worry about this. They're like, so you either have to be 100% certain that God's going to heal them right now or you can't pray. I was like, well, how would I know that? That sometimes people are healed and sometimes they're not. How do I know for certain that God will heal them? So that's a kind of difficult position to hold. But so what most people do is they tack away from that and they go, oh, I don't know whether God wants to heal them at all or not. So I pray for them in a slightly vague, wishy-washy, yes, Lord, I ask that you would heal this person of this sickness or this 
you know, sometimes awful things, even cancer or whatever, and going, Lord, I pray you'd heal them if you want to, but I know you might not want to because sometimes it's not the right thing. It's not what you really want to do. But if you did feel like doing it today, and in doing so, all faith just dissipates from the prayer. And actually, we don't have to pray like that. I don't have to pray like that. I can pray, Lord, I am absolutely certain that you are going to heal this person. That's not in question. I don't know for certain you're going to heal them right now, but I'm asking you to because you told me to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as in heaven. But I know that you will heal them. I know that all of these sicknesses that have afflicted them will be gone one day forever, never to afflict them again. And I'm praying that you do it now rather than making them wait for it. It's like a Martha type faith. Say, I know this is going to happen. That's not the issue. I'm now asking you to do it now. And actually, we're going to pray for the sick at the end of this meeting because we want to see the healing of power of God come right now into the church. But Martha's saying, I know he will rise again. It's just a question of when. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. This is an outlandish claim. It's a massive statement. Jesus is not just saying, oh, I can give you resurrection and life. That actually would be a huge claim on its own. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. If you are in me by faith, you will never die either. There's something about me that is innately more powerful than death itself. And when I go into the tomb, it is impossible for it to keep its hold on me because I am resurrection and life and I will overcome it. And if you're in me, you will too. Believing in Jesus unites you to Jesus, as we'll see in a couple of weeks when we hear about vine and branches. And if you're part of someone who has overcome death, then you overcome death too. It doesn't have any hold on you because you are in one who is alive. Now, I've used this illustration before, but bear with me if you, some of you haven't heard me say it. Imagine that you are, you're walking on the road and then you get your sudden heart attack and you die. Your heart stops beating and you fall to the floor and within minutes it's too late and, and, you, and you've gone. And this happened to a, a guy who I used to work with uh, just three or four weeks ago. His funeral was last week and it was very sudden and it suddenly got him. Now, a few minutes later, you're, you're dead and it's, it's tragic, and, but your whole body is dead. And so somebody could come along and start wiggling your toe, for instance, and your toe would not respond, right? It's, and it actually, after a short while, it begins to harden in its, in its place. And so the toe has died, even though the toe didn't have, a, you didn't have a toe attack, you had a heart attack. The toe dies because the toe is united with a whole person who is dead. And because the toe is connected to the whole, the toe is dead. Now, that's what Paul says, the, the human life is like when you die in Adam. Adam dies and you are associated with him. You're part of humanity and as a result, you die. But the good news is that the opposite is also true. So let's say you collapse to the floor after a heart attack and then somebody comes along with those pads um, and the you know, defibrillators and they put them on your chest. They go, and they go, and then you come back to life again. You start jumping around the room and within a moment, your big toe is absolutely fine. Your toe has come to life as well. And you could imagine the toe just going, this is really weird because no one put the defibrillator on my toe. So why am I feeling all right? Why have I come back to life? And you would say, oh, big toe, how foolish you are. You have come to life, not because of what you've done, but because you're in one who has come back to life. 
And that means you now get life because of your association with the whole. And that's the relationship, Paul says, and Jesus says, that we have to Christ. We are in one who has come back to life, and as a result, we raise and are come to life as well. All that is required of Martha and of you and me to get that privilege of unity with Christ and resurrection life in him, all that we need is faith. Jesus says so. The one who believes in me will live. Do you believe this? And she replies, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So when we're faced with the reality of death in this world, we need faith like Martha. We need to believe Jesus when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. But that's not our only response. We need faith like Martha, but we also need to respond with grief like Mary. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's exactly what her sister had said. But she seems to say it with a lot more emotion because we then read, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Grief is the appropriate response to death. We must grieve. By that, I don't mean feeling sad for a moment and then picking ourselves up and getting on with the day. I mean allowing and expressing the grim anguish of death to come out in our words, in our tears, in our actions, in our memories and reminiscences. Actually allowing those things to be expressed by our physical bodies and our souls and our words. It is completely appropriate. It's necessary for us to grieve people that we love. It's good to give thanks for them as well. There's not a contrast here between you can either be thankful that someone lived or sad that they died. In many, Of course, you do both together, and it's good to celebrate lives, but we must grieve death. We mustn't jump over grief straight to celebration. Oh, well, of course, it's a great thing that they were alive and we're really... That's a wonderful thing to be able to say, but we must grieve too. Funerals are supposed to be sad. They're meant to be places where people cry and grieve. They're meant to be corporate expressions of lament and grief and sorrow. And even within our church, some communities do that better than others. Some communities are very good at corporately grieving and seeing the reality of death. Others of us prefer to just not think about it and just have the very, very quiet little thing, get that out of the way, and then, hey, let's go back to a celebration. But whichever way we're naturally inclined in our culture, we've got to embrace the reality, the need to grieve. And that's what Mary does. She falls at Jesus' feet. She cries out in pain. The what if question that so many of us feel in different versions. I mean, Lord, why did this have to happen? If you just got here a day earlier, if you just, this wouldn't have happened. And who hasn't, when faced with savage grief, asked a question like that? Lord, why this? Why now? Why them? And she does that. She wails on Jesus. She cries as part of a group, not just on her own. And of course, it's so noisy and visceral that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And if we approach death with Mary's grief and not Martha's faith, we live in despair. But if we approach death 
with Martha's faith and not Mary's grief, we live in unreality. We, we avoid the, the real sense of the finality and tragedy of what has happened. I love the way that the, uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, the sort of the standard funeral service that many churches have used for a long time in English-speaking countries, this is how they do it. And I just think it's such a wise balance of Martha's faith and Mary's grief. It's old language, but bear with me. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God by his great mercy to take to himself the soul of our dear brother or sister here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change the body of our lowest state that it may be like his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he's able to subdue all things unto himself. That's a powerful statement. It's a recognition we've got to grieve the reality, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and we've got to trust the future hope. And then, of course, immediately after this display of grief from Mary comes the shortest verse in Scripture and one of the most comforting statements ever made by anybody. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus, God in Christ, God cried. He stood at a graveside and he burst into tears because it was so bleak and horrible that he didn't know what else to do. Behold the grief of God. The creator of the universe poured wine at a wedding and shed tears at a funeral in the same gospel. He lived what it's like with the highs and the devastating lows of the human experience. And if we are to respond appropriately to death, we need to have faith like Martha, but we also need to have grief like Mary. And finally, we need grace like Lazarus. We need grace like Lazarus. I mean, what are you talking about? Lazarus is dead. That's the whole point. Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes us as dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. He says we are spiritual corpses festering and decomposing and wrapped in grave clothes and sealed with a stone. That's what you and I are, spiritually speaking. We can't hear the voice of God. We can't go, oh yes, I kind of like this about God, but I've got these questions. Maybe I better go on a course. Like spiritually speaking, we're dead in our trespasses, Paul says in Ephesians. We can't do anything to resurrect ourselves. Dead people can't do anything. We need a miracle if we're gonna be raised to new life, not just a bit more effort. We need something from beyond to come in by grace and make us alive. We need Jesus to do for us what he does for Lazarus in this story, which is move the stone, pray to the Father, speak words of life and set people free. And if that doesn't happen, you and I are still dead, right? We've got no hope because in ourselves as dead people, we simply cannot summon the faith or the knowledge or anything to give up, get ourselves back to life. And this is what happens. Imagine, now read this story through that pair of eyes. Think this is what you and I need spiritually, what Lazarus had physically. Verse 39, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad smell. He's been dead four days. Then Jesus said, but didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I mean, I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe you sent me. When he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Family, this is such a beautiful picture of the grace of God. What does Lazarus contribute to his salvation here? Nothing. He's dead. What works does Lazarus have in the grave to get himself back to life again? None. What achievements does he have? What faith does he have to respond to God? None. He's a corpse. Until Jesus calls his name, he's got nothing. And neither of you and neither of I. All the work is done by the voice of Jesus. Lazarus, Laverne, Lawrence, Layla, whatever your name is, come out. And as the voice of Jesus is spoken, life comes to the dead person. Life comes from the resurrecting power of Jesus' voice. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ, the apostle says. Jesus brings life with a word and we step from darkness and death in a tomb to life and light in Christ. That's what salvation is. It's effectively brought. The voice of Jesus comes from outside and you and I, though dead, raised to life by his voice and we step outside into new life. That's what salvation is. And then, very practically, Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go, which I think is a lovely picture of discipleship really in the Christian life as in you've been raised to life now but you can't carry on your life you can't go the rest of your life still wrapped in the clothes of death you need to have the clothes of death peeled off you you need to put on new and different clothes and you need to learn how to walk again and how to run again and how to eat, eat and drink again and become the kind of person God made you to be it's a picture of the life of discipleship of transformation more and more into the likeness of Christ and this process is happening right now as I'm speaking Jesus, not Andrew, not the preacher, Jesus is calling your name, some of you. Jesus is speaking to you, he's saying, come forth, rise up, come to life, spiritually speaking. And you've heard messages like this maybe before. It might even be your first time in church and the word of the Lord Jesus is coming to you, bringing life as he speaks it. So in a sense, we are all Martha in this story and we need faith. In a sense, we're all Mary in this story, and when faced with death, we need grief. But in another beautiful sense, we're all Lazarus in this story, because what we need most of all is grace, for the word of God, to not just break our chains, but raise us to life and lead us from the tomb. And in a world full of death, which it still is, and until Christ returns, it will be, we are called to be people who believe and who grieve and who receive the goodness of what God has done for us in Jesus, the I am, the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the Lord Jesus. We are grateful for him. We're grateful for the authority he has to forgive sins, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. We're thankful for the power of that mighty voice. We're thankful for the compassion of those tears at the graveside. We're thankful for the breezy confidence with which he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And the simplicity of putting our hope in him. Lord, I pray that even now as we turn to pray for one another and ask that you would move among us and bring your healing power and your kingdom to bear among us and physically drive back the darkness. We pray that we would experience the mighty work of Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And we pray it in his name. Amen.